Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and of course, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. I see that you're outdoors. Looks like you're in Singapore for Token 2049, and it's ironic because I got back today to Austin and you're in Singapore. So one of us have to stay out to keep the global perspective on, I think. <laughs> keep things in balance. <laughs> so I'm still saying good morning because Singapore, of course, is the same time zone as uh, where I am in Australia. Um, but here I'm here for the 20, Token 2049 conference that starts tomorrow um, and goes for two days. Uh, 10,000 people um, are attending this conference, Amazing. which is an extraordinary number. In, and they've confirmed that there's 10,000 signed up. What's also interesting is there's 140 side events starting last week and going all the way through to this Friday. Sadly, I can't go to any of the side events on Friday afternoon, Saturday or Sunday because the Grand Prix's on. And I've got to see oh, those cars get around the life. track and see who's going to win. <laughs> such a tough life, Derek. I, I don't know how you do it. Uh, <laughs> don't know how I do it. Now, Nitin. Tell us where you've been in Austria, because what you've done in Austria, I find fascinating. It's both extraordinarily positive, it's mentally stimulating, and it's an honor to have been invited to be able to do such a thing. So maybe let's start off about that and we'll chat about what I've been doing in, in, in Singapore afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Austrian event was fantastic. It was organized by something called Bold Community and the intent for the Bold Community, which is sponsored partially by Austrian Federation, uh, sorry, Austrian Federal Economic you know, Chambers. And they hosted this incredible event, invited about 50 of the visionary leaders from around the world in different facets of life. So I was fortunate to be part of this truly inspiring event with global leaders sort of exchanging their perspective. There were people from space tech, there were people from looking into biotech, looking into the guy who was one of the primary surgeons from Neuralink was there, people looking into metaverse. Uh, so it is more towards sort of building a framework for better tomorrow and understanding and tackling problem of today. And I was very fortunate because this environment was, again, top 50 leaders. And I was, again, humbled to be a part of that from a digital asset and re representing digital asset sort of leadership. And because of the fact that you had all these leaders from different walks of life and different domain special, you know, uh, specialities, yes. It, it was leading to, it led to a high energy environment and there was mutual Ooh. respect because everybody was expert in their own areas. It was fun yes. because we exchanged a lot of perspectives, very conducive learning environment because it is in the mountains and we did meditation, we did yoga in the morning before we started our days. It was Beautiful. hectic and intense because we worked a lot. So I think all in all, great honor to be a part of this community, which to me implies that crypto is certainly part of the future because we are in that conversation of what's going to happen a decade, a hundred years from now and crypto and digital asset was certainly integral to that conversation, Derek. And so. what sort of points do you think they took away on your views on crypto 
and crypto assets in the future. So I think, Derek, there were a few things where we're looking into the future of governance. So they took in, looked into AI and what AI could do. And there was a whole element of can a lot of govern, government functions, can that be replaced by AI? Uh, and the same theme, can we replace the, can we inject the financial system that's more egalitarian in nature, which is more responsible in nature, which imposes sound monetary policies? And of course, all these three sort of becomes talking points for crypto as well. So the the idea was as the world gets increasing, increasingly digital, and that includes yeah. our healthcare, our DNA and, and financial systems and and AI that's sort of, you know, empowering various facets of our industry, including energy domains. I think this was central to the theme to say, what will that world look like and what do countries need to do to prepare to build that framework, which will require the investment, which will require the thinking and of course the skill set and leadership. So there's future of work, there's a whole slew of things, which I think was made it more exciting. And and Derek, it was exhausting. I mean, I took the entire time in flight to process. There was so much stuff to process. Uh, it was incredible. So I'm thankful, uh, essentially. Oh, look, I, I tell you, I, I, I'm envious, frankly, because what an extraordinarily stimulating thing to do. Um, I'm looking forward to token 24, sorry, token 2049 because of the same thing because i'm actually there just to learn about what's happening in the industry what the industry's thinking about you know the regulations coming and and the goals of different countries etc it's always a vibrant environment and i'm going to i think four of the side events along the way but before i've started that we've had a day here in singapore where as a, as a you know as a ceo of a fund my task has been dealing with platforms for onboarding the funds on the platforms, which is really interesting, progressing well. Dealing with an interesting group called ADDX here in Singapore. They yeah. used to be called iStocks. Just a conversation yeah. with them. They're interesting in the fact that they're tokenizing real world assets and they're doing it, doing it within what I would call a walled garden, where essentially accredited investors can go in and trade within that walled garden. It's kind of, maybe it's a progress towards the tokenization of real world assets, which of course is going to be a very big aspect of this space over the next you know, five and six years, as it's realized that if you can tokenize and fractionate a real world asset like this gorgeous little hotel I'm staying in and have people own that all around the world, you're starting to really democratize wealth. And at the same time, I met with one of our investors who's a very bright Indian company, and they've made their their monies out of e-services out of India, uh, and they're based here in Singapore and in the UK. And this particular company is, you know, both an investor in what we're doing, but intrigued about what the company is doing. And one of the conversations we had, of course, is what's happening at the moment with the G20. What's the G20 looking like in regards to its views on digital assets? And and I wanted to see your take on it because. Certainly, they're now very aware of digital assets. I sense they see digital assets as a fairly solid threat. And, and reading their statements on the way through between the IMF and the FSB, et cetera, you, you would kind of look at it and think they acknowledge it. They know it has to exist. They've made statements such as we're not interested in banning it in total. And I wanted to see your view on it because I know in the past, You've actually even consulted to the Indian government in certain areas. So I've been intrigued about what your thoughts are there. 
you know, first of all, you should certainly enjoy Token 2049. I think it's a significant industry event. In, incidentally, this permissionless in Austin, which I'll spend some time tomorrow there. So we'll have a lot more yeah, notes to compare yeah. when we come back next week. Also, I think it's it's incredible that you're able to meet the Asian ecosystem. That's And, and yeah. Token 2049 is global, but you'll actually get a flavor of what's happening in Asia, which I think is such, a, such an amazing time to be there. So two things in this one. I did spend some time, and I did actually used to work in my IBM days in context of CBDC with Reserve Bank of India and figuring out as to okay. impact. And we done we did a few studies. So that that was my context with the Indian government. I do spend as an Indian myself at least once a year in in spending some time with the emerging ecosystem and and again the the Economic Council, you know, in India, which is looking into you know growth and 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 getting this back. But this policy paper is interesting. So you're absolutely right. The policy paper says, you know, that this was jointly published by IMF and FSB, which is Financial Stability Board. And it warned the jurisdictions around the world against implementing blanket bans to mitigate the risk, which is associated with the sector, which is crypto sector. And it recommended, of course, it's every G7, G20, this injection of financial policy and revaluation of what's happening around the world, it did recommend target restrictions and looking into sound monetary policy. So what I took away from this report, there are a few distinct things that report mentions, and I'll take away from analysis of this from my vantage point as I've been keeping track of all the World Economic Forum reports, the, the G7, the G20. And one thing is to, first thing was to tackle the macroeconomic risk from crypto. And I and I quote, the jurisdiction should strengthen monetary policy frameworks and guard against excessive capital for volatility and adopt unambiguous tax treatment of crypto. Well, Ooh. the tax piece is not new because, you know, we've been Ooh. talking about this earlier and Biden administration went back to ensure that European are not giving undue tax advantage for the for the for the flight of companies to have sort of a minimum tax across all the European jurisdiction to to not incentivize one country to provide undue tax advantages. So the tax piece is understood. What's interesting about the statement of strengthening monetary policy is I think crypto is doing its job. The fact that crypto provides an alternative rails, alternative you know, currency system, alternative capital market system is now forcing the G20 and the recommendation from FSB, the Financial Stability Board, to say, hey, we really need to strengthen our monetary policy. We cannot be loose without money and, and the money supply that actually we've been discussing, both in terms of the impact of quantitative easing, which is excessive money supply in the system, and the impact of quantitative tightening, which is removal of Ooh. money from the system and where we are now Ooh. today with excessive inflation. The second thing, Derek, was that the restriction should not substitute for robust microeconomic policies and credible in institutional framework and comprehensive regulation oversight. And again, I quote this from the report, is that they're saying that this should not be a substitute for, it should be in parallel to your microeconomic policies. And that again, to me, is saying that we are factoring this a new emerging asset class as a competing element to our existing you know, the credibility of our financial institutions, the policies that every country sets forth to for for, for you know for the for the benefit of its country and the global ecosystem. And again, uh, the comprehensive regulation oversight, which is provided by FS, FSB and FATF, and again FASB like entities which are global entities that provides sort of framework to the to the globe to adhere to. And the last thing I would say 
which is really, really critical in my opinion, Derek, is capital flight or, or, or capital control. So there's something called, I quote again, rapid, rapid capital flight or reversals could materialize if foreign currency denomination stable coins become easier and cheaper to hold in large quantities. Yes. And this stuck out to me because the fact that crypto facilitates rapid mobility of money, which is the velocity of money really increases because again, we're able to move money fast. Mm -hmm. And we've discussed in our previous show, the phenomenon that Turkey and Argentina has experienced where they want something stable, whether it's Bitcoin or, or US dollar, which was stable coin. It's warned against to say, hey, this may interfere with our capital controls, which many countries have in terms of either buying dollars or moving yes. money out of the country. And capital controls are artificial because every country wants to protect its reserves, which may or may not yes. always be in benefit of its citizens. I think these three Correct. stood out. Uh, so I'll pause here, Derek, to get, get your opinion too, which to me, crypto is doing, uh, for the first time I felt that finally we are able to achieve the intended role of crypto, not directly, but indirectly for the global bodies to rethink what they have been doing and playing around with the financial system for, for, for decades now. So I'll pause here, get your thoughts, if that made sense to you. That's so insightful. It's as if all of a sudden a serious competitor to money has appeared and everyone is starting to reconsider what money should do. And as you know, the SWIFT network is actually starting to become slightly more SWIFT, not very SWIFT, but slightly more SWIFT. And we're seeing, we're seeing banks start to transfer their money. I mean, in Australia, you transfer money from one bank to another. It could take two days, three days a while ago. It's nonsense. Yeah. It should be instantaneous. Now it is. The Oscar system is now transferring money instantaneously yeah. between banks. I would argue cryptocurrency had a major impact on that occurring because they saw it coming. And that fast transfer system started to appear. It's interesting in India, when we talk to Indian investors overseas, sometimes they say the maximum amount we can invest overseas is 250,000 US dollars that we take out of Australia, I mean, sorry, take out of India. And so they say, I have three children overseas. And by the time I educate three children and house them, I don't have much left to invest overseas because this, these artificial restrictions are in place on money in yeah. different countries. And, and I agree with you, it, that is not the democratization of assets. That is not what real transfer of money and wealth and international investment is all about. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, one of the great things with digital assets, decentralized finance and cryptocurrencies is that nations such as India, which are so numeric, the Indians so well educated and so numeric, so capable as far as software engineers and developers and, and dealing on an international area. And not only that, the vast majority armed with high-speed cellular devices in their hand, they're looking at this and going, wait a sec, I can deal all around the world with this. I can, I can deal on my intellectual property, my capabilities, my skill sets, and I can get paid instantly from anywhere in the world I think this is a wonderful environment and not only that, I can bank in it without having to try and sign up and go to my bank and get engaged, et cetera. This is both empowering, democratizing, and I think a threat to the, the governments that, that are in power. And you, you know, I'm not a libertarian. I never have been. <laughs> I love the idea of democratizing assets and I love the idea of empowering people and not 
to the lesser position of the government. And so hopefully this will be brought through with the regulations. I hope that when they look towards regulating, they're looking at more about how to empower their people and how, and certainly India is like the second biggest user of crypto assets in the world. Yeah. Is, and, and if they're not the biggest by now, I wouldn't, I'd be surprised. To empower the Indians that they can get on a world stage and transact is something I'd love to see happen. Uh, and I don't see that the number one thing to do for regulations is to protect the banks. I'm not against yeah. the banks. I just don't think it should be to protect the banks. I think it should be to empower the people. Um, what, what do you so, think so, as an international citizen, Nitin? Yeah, so so one thing which also stood out was, again, I quote, um, if foreign currency denominated stable coins become easier, the language, mm -hmm. easier, and cheaper to hold large quantities relative to foreign currency bank accounts. So they're suggesting that, yes, they, they acknowledge that it's easier to hold stable coins and move stable coins around yes. the world. And yes. they also acknowledge that if it becomes, if a common citizen is able to hold these stable coins instead of banks holding it, they need to evaluate. And that to me is one acknowledgement of the fact that it's easier and it's yep. easy to move. And the fact that there are citizens who are having demand for these stable coins, but it also acknowledges that um, a lot of jurisdictions around the world have been you know, loosey-goosey with their monetary policies, which is promoting people to go to an easier and better option. That to me yeah. is an acknowledgement in its own right. Uh, but what also is interesting is that they have warned against uh, implementation of blanket bans, which I think coming from India and having worked with, again, back in the day with, with Indian governments in the foreign ministry and in, uh, the, the finance ministry, is the ban was never on the table. India never banned crypto. They actually had overtaxed it which was a sort of a, a driver of, of, of discouragement. And even then, I think Ooh. people did make the time to invest. But it was never, unlike China, India never banned it because India did see the value in exactly the post-Y2K effort, which really catapulted India on the global scale because of the demand for technology and IT workforce. They see crypto in the same lens to say, this is a enabler for India. And you have amazing projects like Polygon, that have taken birth in India and they sort of raised enough money. And there are many, many such projects, including ENS, for example, all coming out of India. So they view, we, they view this as another area for India to capitalize on for this talented workforce and everything else. So yes. I, I do agree with you, Derek, that, that it's, but these, I also take this with a grain of salt because every time you have a G7, G20, every year BIS, IMF, the entire alphabet soup of these global <laughs> communities that provide this governance framework, these are just suggestions. I mean, no one has to follow them. India can do whatever it's want. China can do. China has already done what it wants to do. So I, I, I think, but to me, it's interesting nuggets. And the fact that it's reported to the top 20 countries in the world or when they met in India this past, you know, week, I think it's a great sign. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm bullish on, on this report because they've acknowledged a few things, which to me is is a good thing from that point of view, I think. It's certainly over the last 18 months, two years, we've seen the world of crypto assets, cryptocurrencies take center stage a number of times. And one of those center stages you might recall is when the last um, budget was being approved, not the current one, but the last budget was getting approved uh, in the Senate. And they actually argued the proposition that, yes, you can, we'll, we'll let you um, increase the debt 
on the grounds that we can put these certain restrictions on on crypto assets. Um, that was the first time we actually had this bizarre feeling of being slightly proud. In other words, we're getting on the world stage now as a community. Uh, they didn't achieve what they wanted to, but the but the the debt the debt was uh, increased, and and now we're seeing this get to a world stage. It's now front and center with the G20 as being you know very very important. It it is I I, I do think it's challenging that that essentially the legacy system and the legacy technology. I know that's being a bit rough, but it's the legacy system and the legacy technology of banking and governance is determining the future of the new technology coming. You know, tell, tell me what legacy industries determine the future of what of what the technology coming is. You know, it's not exactly ideal. However, it's the reality that we have. And and what I think is going to occur is is the regulations will go in place. And where the regulations don't best suit the the what 450 50 million users, nearly half a billion users now of crypto assets, I would imagine they'll just continue to trade the way they want. And, and that, you know, that will then start making people realize there's very great efficiencies, there's great effectiveness in this, et cetera, et cetera, on the way through. Or certain countries will choose to have much softer regulations to get more efficiency into their financial systems, in which case they become more competitive and other countries will soon turn around and start altering regulations. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so it's interesting, Derek, you mentioned that because this week alone, there was a there was a benchmark study done by Bitwise and Verify, you know, for financial advisors. And wealth managers have been receiving all kinds of queries from their clients to get exposure to the new yes. asset class. So while all this is, and this yes. is the United States, this is only in the US, right? Ooh, ooh. And 90% of financial advisors, so there's something called financial advisors. These are, you know, licensed professionals who provide advisory services. You have registered investment advisors who have certain framework of what they can do. And they take the clients and they are basically high net worth individuals. Think of them as wealth managers and they work with the broader ecosystem, whether it's going after private equity, which these are sort of investments that go into, let's say, you know, building old age homes or highway projects or whatever the case is. 90% of financial advisors have received 90%. That's a lion's share. So private markets, yes. as people may or may not know, is four times bigger than the traditional equities and stock markets in general. So it's four a much times. bigger lion's share. And by the way, Dr. Gensler has also been behind that to say we need to regulate that industry as well, because right now it's private markets. And the idea is that because you have interest of high net worth individuals, the market should be able to regulate itself because these are individuals who are who work with money and, and have interest and it's quite capable of, of, of regulating itself. You have some guidelines beyond certain threshold, but it's largely self-managed, so to speak. Ooh. And what's interesting is that now the registered investment advisors and the financial advisors, licensed professionals, they don't have much experience. So while what you have done with Portal Asset Management, Derek, is providing that vehicle, that avenue, to give them an optionality to it. Now, mm. a lot of these financial advisors are struggling to say, hey, what do we do? Because the ETFs are still on, ETF would have been an easy way to, to give them an you know, investment option, except that it has its own challenges for the limited you know, exposure to Bitcoin and ETH, for instance. So now mm. they're saying, with, and this is all published, of course, in, in Coindesk, what's interesting was that you have four options. You either go with move your money to Coinbase and just do it like a private citizen does, which I thought was hilarious. 
You can go towards one of the over-the-counter trust, which is the famed grayscale Bitcoin trust, which is in the verge of, or at least fighting with SEC to convert into, into, into ETF, which has its own challenges. And then you have going towards a private fund like Portal Asset Management as one of the venues or otherwise going through an SMA account. And I found after all Ooh. these years, you have, again, a massive flurry of interest coming in from large high net worth individuals and wealth managers. It's all positive for the industry. And I just think that it has to be now a considered effort between the regulators, the industry and the builders, which is again, the crypto industry itself to get its act together to forge ahead. We can't have, no longer have FTX and three AC like scams anymore because that erodes trust from the industry. At the same time, we cannot have a negative sort of a stance from the SEC-like regulation to to stymie the growth of the industry, which is in its infancy, I think. So that's that's my thought on that, Derek. Mm. Well, you know, agreed. And what we do often when we come up to Singapore is we work with a great group up here called Financial Alliance, and they have 250-odd financial planners, wealth managers out there. Now, many of those present and only work with accredited investors or what we call in Australia wholesale investors, and they are investors of a certain net worth. And those investors are still hungry to learn about this space. Their knowledge base is not strong. So education is a, is a constant environment for us. And one that's great because we have to learn ourselves as to, as to educating and the industry is moving so quickly. So we will be back again in a month's time to Singapore to do just that. But education is not just for investors. You might recall that last week I presented a paper that was read on the floor yes. of the Senate. Yeah. And, and that is in part education too, because the senators, which who are across everything, can't be deep into this space because there's so many areas that they're covering. So there was a lot of learning process in that paper to be read to the Senate. And, and that is, I think, a very positive thing that's, that, that has come with the Australian government starting to read papers like that on the floor of the Senate yeah. as they're starting to consider how to regulate this space. And part of that, we got a query from an Australian wanting to ask a few questions you about did. that. So, yeah, I think I might read that out and see what you think. This is from at BUS4827. And Nitin, I don't think his parents gave him that name. <laughs> um, we'll see. And so he says, curious that Aussie banks and government have been hostile towards crypto, especially when ANZ was part of the blockchain experiment with SWIFT focused on CBDC messaging. Would love to know more about that. Either of you have any insights or thoughts on that experiment? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And actually, during my Beam days, I did work on, on, on a few projects um, with ANZ in the region. And that took me to Australia several times, Derek. One of the times I did actually go to your to your hometown of Perth to meet uh, one of the local banks uh, there as well. And ANZ's experiment has been going on now for, I would say, a good part of the last six to eight years, both in terms of, of what they did with SWIFT, for, but they also had their own experiment in terms of ANZ. ANZ is a truly global bank. And so moving mm -hmm. money inside of ANZ ecosystem, they didn't want to use SWIFT because it's expensive to use SWIFT network. So they said, can we use our own internal network? So, and then they also 
you know, launched a project for, you know, your, your bank loans, which is in the, in the country. And it was more towards sort of figuring out as to what happens when people pledge their car or, or borrow money and they have to have a system which sort of connects the borrowers and what they need to do. And as a bank, they need to be behind the scenes in terms of facilitating movement of money and eventually recovering the money or handling yes. um, the, the payments back from small businesses. And I forget the name of the project at the moment, but but I think that these are ongoing projects. And, and in many ways, if a large financial institution like ANZ or Westpac or NatWest, like entities who are, who are NatWest in the UK, of course, who are doing these experiments, uh, I think it adds to credibility and it helps exactly what your paper did, Derek. It helps the banking ecosystem, which is the RBA and ASX, uh, as the two sort of prominent institutions, it helps them understand the value, the te technical feasibility, but also the fact that you have a large financial institution they can rely upon in implementing the technical awareness and technical readiness of that infrastructure. So I think that's a very positive sign. I've always commended ANC's abilities to be able to run experiments you know, around, around the world in that context. And I think there was another experiment that we did with Westpac in my old days, which is moving the money between New Zealand, Westpac, New Zealand, Westpac, Australia. And this is completely bypassing SWIFT network just to prove the point that we can move money. And this was to mitigate the risk, you know, mitigate the risk. They were able to move money for their employees. So it was like controlled experiment. And they were right. able to prove the instant movement of money between uh, the two countries, even though they are neighboring countries. Interesting. So Nitin, so Australia's had a couple of very positive, very good. Australia's had a couple of attempts at establishing a stable coin. I think lack of liquidity, secondary market, et cetera, maybe slowed it down. But how important do you think it is for Australia and for that matter, other countries outside the USA, because they've already got that, to have their own stable coins as part of an early infrastructure in creating crypto assets? Yeah, so, so one thing, and I actually, I, I've written about this topic too, Derek. I think it makes sense. So what ANZ Bank did with the CBDC pilot project, and they also did something with trading carbon credits as an example of use of that mm. CBDC. So banks are licensed to give credit. So the way stable coins work is you have a bunch of models. One of the model is I'm going to issue one stable coin and I'm going to keep a dollar that backs it up into an account and not touch it because that's one-to-one -one backing. And that's how I keep the stability of that stable coin. And the other model is the the fact that banks are also credit issuing engines of a society, that they have the license to issue credit, which is lending, they can lend that money and they are, they're lending on back of backs of the balance sheet. So banks taking responsibility and to lend money, they have to maintain certain liquidity, which is a part of their liability. And they are accountable for that liability to the central bank, which is the RBA. And I think in that case, bank becomes a better avenue to issue stablecoin. And the studies have been done several times, both by BIS and including the Federal Reserve and other sort of global bodies to say, instead of the central banks issuing stablecoin, India did the same study as well. Bank of England did the same study is instead of central bank issuing stablecoin, it may be best to delegate that function to the traditional banks and only the financial institutions which have banking licenses, when they're able to issue stablecoin, you're able to now piggyback on the same prudential treatment of assets to say that they are already governed by certain framework and it becomes less disruptive 
because now they have client relationships, they are investing in the infrastructure, yes. they're able to maintain liquidity and they're able to make the use cases and affects the banking the most. So at that point, the banking community itself is better prepared than something that comes from top to bottom, like the existing payment rails imposed by a central bank to say, thou shall use this. In this case, this is this is stemming, the, the development is, is happening from the banks. I think it's very positive. I'm a I'm big Ooh. proponent of banks doing this work, then central banks sort of pushing it down to the to the local retail banks. And also, of course, it gives people the opportunity to do transactions with stablecoins instantaneously across the world, deal within their own currency, not have to convert to another currency in certain circumstances because they have their own stablecoin. And it represents an on-ramp into the industry too, represents an on-ramp for the banks to become more involved with the industry and represents an on-ramp for the consumers to become more involved with the industry. Now, once consumers have got Australian dollar stablecoin sitting in their wallet, they may well say, but I'd like a bit of an investment in Bitcoin, or I'd like a little bit of exposure to Ethereum, or wait a sec, there's this extraordinary decentralized finance system here that I can utilize and leverage and get a return on. And so you'll see this progressively, you know, education occurring, learning occurring, opportunities unfolding in front of people and, and engagement occurring. So I, I think it's good for that reason too. And as it is at the moment, more often than not, we reverse out of transactions into US dollar stable coins. Well, that's all very well if you're in the US, but if you're not in the US, you're kind of asking yourself the question, why do I keep converting to this other country's fiat um, currency? And and so we know that some $7 trillion of stable coin transactions occurred in the US, more than all of the PayPal, Visa, MasterCard transactions combined. So, you, so stable coins are definitely used. There's no question about that. All right. Well, Nitin, Unless there's something else, I've got a conference to get to, and I know you uh, and have some to... people to catch up with. <laughs> yeah. Well, enjoy and next your week conference. I've got, some re- I've got some reporting to do because I'll report on what happened at Token 2049, and you'll be at permissionless, and so you'll be able yes. to give us an update on what's happened with permissionless. Absolutely, and looking forward to next week. I think we have a lot to cover next week. So enjoy your conference, Derek. Stay safe and enjoy Singapore. Enjoy the food, for sure. Can't help but enjoy Singapore. Always a great thing. <laughs> All right. Take care, Derek. Bye for now. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.